and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. So this week, we're speaking with Danielle Lindemann about her book, True Story, What Reality TV Says About Us. And, you know, I, th- I think this was a great opportunity to think deeply and hopefully smartly about the trash TV that's most of our guilty pleasure watching. So I enjoyed this conversation, if for nothing else, than to think about at least some of the things that come up for me when I do watch reality TV. Oh, okay. What comes up for you, Eric? You know, things like, for example, I watch a lot of competition-based reality shows. Um, mm, so, same here. You know, so like cooking shows, for example, or RuPaul's Drag Race. I know both you and I really enjoy that um, that show. And obviously what we know is we're watching it is how constructed it is, right? We're not under the illusion that this is, it's not scripted per se, but it's very much, let's say, produced. But, it, it, you know, Danielle's book and our conversation kind of helps us to think about, okay, well, if if it is produced, it's also reproducing certain kinds of social values or social prejudices that we, in our, you know, intellectual and everyday lives really don't like. And yet there's a way in which we kind of allow them to circulate in reality TV, oftentimes in a way that's uncritical. Yeah, totally. I think... You know, that is a thing that I wonder about too. Like, why why do we enjoy something that is often, you know, against, may, maybe against our core values? I think RuPaul's Drag Race does not fit into that category, but as I true, do find true. drag against yeah. my core values. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I find it actually pretty safely within my core values. But something like The Bachelor or... Yeah. Um, Real Housewives uh, is, is another one. Real Housewives, yeah, like there's so many things where, or I mean, I didn't watch the show on Netflix, but you know, the the sort of billionaire club or whatever that show was called, where it was like, mm. you know, a bunch of people who had made money essentially as arms dealers, <laughs> um, and and so like, what is it about uh, about that that's enjoyable for us? And it's an interesting question, right? Like, why do we like something that otherwise we might? disagree with or abhor and uh, and that is something that we definitely talked to Danielle about yeah all right well let's get to that conversation let's do it We're excited to have Danielle Lindemann on the line with us today. Danielle is an associate professor of sociology at Lehigh University, and her work explores the relationship between gender, sexuality, the family, and popular culture. She's the author of Commuter Spouses, New Families in a Changing World, and Dominatrix, Gender, Eroticism, and Control in the Dungeon. Her writing and research have been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, The Economist, The Atlantic, Washington Post, Rolling Stone, Salon, Need I Go On, many other publications. But she joins us today to talk about her latest book, True Story, What Reality TV Says About Us. Bouncing between the ideas of major thinkers in modern sociology, including Emile Durkheim, Michel Foucault, Pierre Bourdieu, and others, the book explores how reality TV both reflects and reproduces the real-world social tensions, inequities, and slippages around class, race, gender, sexuality, and other categories of being. 
Rather than merely trash TV, or perhaps I would say in addition to being trash TV, Lindemann argues that our favorite shows are lenses through which we can better understand our world, our social lives, and the powerful forces that shape them and us. Thanks so much for joining us, Danielle. We're thrilled to have you. Thanks for having me on. Danielle, so you write at the beginning of this book that you are a fan of reality TV. And so I was curious how you decided to combine fandom with your real job as a sociologist and come to this subject to study it. Sure. I like to think of this as part of my real job as a sociologist. People say, when did you begin the research for this? And I say, my whole life has been a quest, a uh, pursuit of research for this, or at least since I discovered the real world when I was 15. So yeah, I do position myself as a fan in the book. I watch a lot of reality TV. I teach a course at Lehigh University on the sociology of reality TV, where we pair classic sociological texts with episodes of reality TV shows. And I've always sort of had an inkling that this is something that I, that I wanted to turn into a book. So basically, this book is the kind of fruition of that class. One of the things that I want to open up this conversation with is... A kind of basic question about one of the claims that you make, which is that, in fact, reality TV is quite conservative. And you mean conservative not in exactly a political ideological spectrum, though certainly certain types of conservative political ideas and ideologies do get reproduced, sometimes in curious and unexpected ways in reality TV, but rather that it kind of has a narrowing effect. So what reality TV allows us to see as acceptable for gender, race, class, while it seems democratizing, actually is quite narrowing. So can you talk a little bit about kind of why that is and also why, counterintuitively, we might find that narrowness so incredibly appealing? Yeah, so it is paradoxical, right, that this genre that's known for its kind of zany characters mm -hmm. and unusual premises would kind of teach us how, again, conservative we are as a culture. And again, like you said, not conservative necessarily in the sense of politically conservative, but thinking in very kind of narrow and unyielding ways, especially about who and what qualifies as kind of legitimate and real and good and healthy. Everything from what qualifies as a legitimate mother to, mm -hmm. you know, what kind of pants should I buy? We think right. about these things in kind of narrow ways in terms of what's acceptable and what's unacceptable. And what reality TV does is sort of shows us in amplified form these kind of narrow definitions and categories that we use for things. So in amplified form, it shows us kind of how we think about race in kind of narrow ways, how we think about gender in narrow ways and our gender roles and what sorts of things that men and women should and should not be doing how we think about what qualifies as a family in kind of narrow ways. So again, kind of paradoxically, like you said, there is something kind of appealing about that to the viewer that, you know, if we have some anxieties about society changing too quickly or going in a direction that we're not used to, reality TV kind of yanks us back and mm -hmm. takes us back to this kind of, again, conservative ideal. Just to follow up on this, because this is what I find fascinating both in reading your book, but also my own kind of psychodynamics as a viewer. And I should say my interest in reality TV is primarily in cooking competition shows and RuPaul's Drag Race, right? So 
I'm not part of the housewives verse. It's too intimidating to jump in. I've been out for too long. So, so I really, (laughs) you know what? People have said that to me and I tried jumping into an episode and I felt like a person walking into the middle of a big movie. You know, like I have no idea what is happening. Something is happening, but I don't know why it matters. So one of the things I wanted to get at is kind of, is reality TV this kind of conservative or narrowing comfort that you're talking about? Is that more about satisfying to use vulgar psychoanalytic terms or outdated ones, I guess? Like, is it just feeding our id, right? Is this, we just want to see people fighting with each other, people, you know, screaming at each other, people cheating each other, those sort of things. Is that part of the conservative appeal of reality TV in a world that's very complicated? Yeah, I mean, so it's nuanced. So reality TV has kind of multiple different appeals. And it really depends on the show that you're watching, too. I think, you know, something Mm. like a cooking show often has a different kind of appeal than something like The Housewives or RuPaul's Drag Race. Yeah. Right. But I do think that part of it is, and research shows this, this kind of voyeurism kind of train wreck effect where (laughs) you're watching the train wreck to remind yourself that, like, even though I'm messed up in certain ways, I'm not like those people over there. I can reaffirm my sense of self as being authentic, legitimate, good, healthy, and normal compared to those people on the screen over there who are like hitting each other with Gucci handbags like you see in The Real Housewives. But do we want to be the people hitting each other with... That's what I mean about the kind of insatisfaction. It's like, is this a stand-in for the fact that I'm not going to claw my dear friend Medea Ocher's face apart, you know, over a handbag at like a Celine sample sale? But maybe there's something that's kind of appealing about the idea that I could do that. I could be licensed to do that. Yeah. So it's interesting because it's very nuanced. So on the one hand, we're watching for this kind of voyeurism reason, right? Because, you know, we're watching this train wreck and we like to remind ourselves that even though we might be messed up in some ways, we are not of the train wreck. We are not like those people over there. And so that reinforces our, again, kind of conservative sense of our own authenticity, legitimacy, goodness, health, normalcy. But at the same time, yes, I think there is also a sense that we might like to be part of the train wreck a little bit. There's this great article that looks at sort of reality TV as kind of hyper reality. So one of the things that reality TV does and has kind of done since the beginning is it traffics in these broad archetypes. There's like the smart one and the hot one and the cheerleader And then so even if those people are not like you at all, there's sort of always something or someone you can kind of grab onto and say, oh, I'm like that. I'm a Bethany or I'm a Carol, which you wouldn't understand because you don't watch Real Housewives, see? Right. Um, I know those names, but yes, I have no context for what that means. Yeah. But you kind of get what I'm saying, right? So in any show, right, there's sort of that person, even the cooking shows, right? There's a cook that you can sort of identify Mm -hmm. with. But at the same time, that person is being put in these kind of fantastical scenarios So you're not just imagining yourself as the smart one, but you're imagining yourself as the smart one kind of sailing in a hot air balloon over Tuscany, competing for this handsome man's hand in marriage. And so what's not to like about that? So that's something else that kind of draws us to these shows. I guess my question was always, you know, that arises while I was reading your book was like, but why is that fun? Why is it entertaining? I mean, because I think... Yes. Okay. So we can see ourselves in some archetypes. We can put ourselves into those shoes. But I think in many scenarios as, you know, let's say as like a feminist or as a person who wouldn't consider vying for a man's love amongst 
a number of other women, why does it give me pleasure to think about putting myself in that position when I would hate to be in that position, right? In reality. Why do you think it's fun? Yeah. I mean, you might hate to be in that specific position, but there are probably aspects of that kind of hyper-reality that you gravitate to, right? So maybe you don't want to, you know, buy for a man's hand in marriage with 15 other people, but the hot air balloon might sound fun. Being in Tuscany might sound fun. Maybe you've never been there before. Going back to the idea of kind of women hitting each other with Gucci handbags, maybe you wouldn't want to do that, but maybe a small part of you kind of feels like you wish you could do that when someone annoys you in everyday life. So it's not that you want to be able to do absolutely everything they're doing on all of the shows, but you can kind of pick and choose some things that, oh, that actually, I kind of would gravitate toward that. That might be fun. That might be entertaining. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, in that sense, like, can I ask you, and maybe this is this is not, not really what your book is about, but like, what do you find fun when you, because as you write in the book, the real world is really where you sort of began your interest in this form. What aspects do you find engaging within it? I think aside from when you realize ways in which this gives us a really good psychological and sociological glimpse into our world. Yeah. I mean, so one of the things that I find fun about reality TV is that a lot of people say this, that I don't have to think too deeply about it. Although again, that's paradoxical because I just wrote a book where I think very deeply about it. Right. But oftentimes I can just But when I watch reality TV, I can just kind of turn off my brain sometimes and let the content just wash right over me. And usually the stakes are not very high, right? It's like, you know, who is fake Prada and who does it, who is real Prada, right? It's not, you know, a life or death. It's not violent. It's just something you can kind of watch mindlessly. And there's this other aspect too, that's kind of the social dimension to reality TV that I enjoy which also is paradoxical because it's like this guilty pleasure. We're not supposed to talk about the fact that we like it. But on the other hand, a lot of people, not just myself, the research shows this, kind of bond communally around these shows, right? Like we have viewing parties, there's water cooler talk. We make connections with people we might not otherwise make connections with kind of around these shows, you know, on the internet too. So there's this whole kind of social dimension to reality TV that I also enjoy. Another part of this is that, you know, reality TV as it exists right now is primarily the way that I think about it is a branding platform, right? And certainly I'm not the only one to observe that. But what I mean by that is it's kind of an ecosystem now in which we can almost effectively market test our next crop of celebrities or celebrities or however you want to slice and dice, like where they fall in the kind of hierarchy of the cultural strata. But it strikes me because I was also a big fan of the real world when I was growing up, that that wasn't maybe always part of the genre. And I'm curious to see kind of when those aspects of it, the kind of marketability, the merchability, I guess we could say, of reality TV and its quote unquote stars starts to emerge and kind of crystallize in the form that we have today. To some extent, so if you look at sort of the first episode of The Real World as kind of the cradle of reality TV, and some would say maybe it goes back further than that, but a lot of people would say The Real World. Some evidence of that kind of multi-platform approach was there. Like, so you're watching the show, but there's also music playing because it's on MTV, right? right? And so you might want to buy music that's being played. They weren't actually trying to sell the music that was being played, but that might have been one of the effects. But really, you know, this sort of, Survivor was kind of the juggernaut Mm. when it came to branding, product placement, really showed 
you know, reality TV existed before Survivor, absolutely. But, you know, Survivor paid for itself in revenue before right, it even right. aired. So, and it really showed kind of how lucrative reality TV could be. And it kind of changed the landscape of reality TV in this sense. And this is something that can, you know, actually has high marketability. This is something that can actually make money for these networks and not just money. For well, I also mean, sorry, to be clear, Danielle, I'm talking about like a branding platform for the participants. So there is absolutely, it's a slam dunk for the networks, right? It's cheap to produce and it brings in a crazy amount of revenue. But for the individuals, right? So I want to say branding apart from like my role or my character, right? So I'm the gay one. I'm, you know, the bitchy queen. I'm this, I'm that, I'm whatever. But I mean, like, for example, a girlfriend told me about The Bachelor and specifically also about Housewives, things that I didn't really know a whole lot about, but that the reason, because I was like, nobody gets paid for any of this. And it's like, well, yes, there might be Mm -hmm. payments in the background, but really the money, the monetization of their performance is going to be the sponsorships they get afterwards, the additions to their social media accounts, you know, all those kind of things. And that's what I mean. That seems fundamentally a part of the calculus now, but was not always there from the beginning. Yeah, I don't know if there's one moment I can pinpoint, but certainly the Kardashians, you know, were master at doing that. From the beginning, they turned themselves, you know, and people often say, oh, they're just famous for being famous. And people kind of point to the Kardashians as everything that's wrong with reality TV. But they were extremely shrewd about the ways in which they branded themselves. In some ways, again, kind of narrow, conservative ways in terms of what constitutes Mm -hmm. legitimate femininity. But yeah, so I mean, the Kardashians from the beginning really were able to, you know, monetize, work this kind of multi-platform angle, right? You're watching the show, but you can also use the products. You know, at one point, I think there were like 50 different products that that family was associated with. So you can, you know, buy the eye cream and you can watch the show and you can play the video game that has Kim's character in it and then you can buy the clothing. So they were really able to kind of market themselves and their bodies and brand themselves in this way that in some ways was revolutionary. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Danielle Lindemann, author of True Story, What Reality TV Says About Us. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We've got Jonathan Alexander on the line with us today for this week's book recommendation. Jonathan is the Chancellor's Professor of English at the University of California, Irvine. He's also LARB's YA editor and the author of many books, including most recently, Dear Queer Self, An Experiment in Memoir, which concludes the trilogy that first began with Creep, which we actually interviewed Jonathan about back in 2018, which feels now like it is a world and lifetime away. So, Jonathan, what book are you recommending to our listeners today? Thanks, Eric. It's great to be back, and I appreciate the chance to make a recommendation. I have probably, like many of us during the during the weird time of the last couple of years, been been doing a lot of comfort reading, mm. and I, I I love what I I don't even know if this is an authentic category. Tell me. I like what I call queer chiclet. <laughs> so oh, books, I like books. the idea. I think I know what you're after, and I, I'm 100% on board. Yeah, so I had, uh, I, I think of something like uh, Tori Peters' Detransition Baby, you know, is, is kind mm. of like a, a really sophisticated kind of kind of queer trans chiclet. And 
the one that I'm I'm really really wanting to to uh, recommend is Mia McKenzie's Sky Falling, and that's S K Y E Sky Falling. Uh, it's a wonderful book about a young African American woman in her 30s, so approaching midlife. She's uh, basically a very sophisticated travel agent, takes people across the world on these different sort of tours. But she's she's back home uh, right now in Philadelphia, uh, dealing with uh, some some family issues, uh, uh, an ailing mother, and also a sort of unexpected surprise. Years and years ago, she had donated one of her eggs to uh, one of her close, close friends who then died, but not before giving birth to a daughter who finds Sky. Uh, now as she's approaching puberty and says, hi, I'm your biological daughter. And it sort of sort of forces Sky, <laughs> whose world seems to be falling, falling apart, forces her to, to really rethink what is the nature of kinship, relationship, family. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful, sophisticated book about questioning deeply what does it mean to have family, to have not just extended family, but, but to recreate family ties uh, in the light of uh, our brave new world. So a comforting, but also challenging, moving, sophisticated read, Sky Falling by Mia McKenzie. Well, so let me ask you, is it it's set in the present day? It is, yeah. I can't imagine, well, to be fair, I can't imagine having a child come out of nowhere um, or even raising a child that I knew about um, at probably any time, but specifically this time. I mean, how does the character kind of navigate that relationship? You know, much of the drama of the book comes from navigating it very, very poorly. Okay. <laughs> I feel like that's what I would do. I would probably do, you know, fail you know, up or whatever. What is delightful about Mackenzie's writing is that uh, this is a character that I love to hate. She is, she's selfish. She's immature. <laughs> you know, she, she's right on the, you know, the cusp of, of turning 40. And wow, does she need several reality checks and some maturation. And I think with the, with the best of this kind of work, that's that's not just what the daughter is uh, out of the blue is going to provide, uh, but it provides all of the characters an opportunity to kind of really rethink what kind of relationships do they want and what are the relationships that people need in order to sustain them and how do those often deviate from what we're taught should be the kinds of sustaining and nurturing relationships we have. So that sounds great. Can you give us the title and author one more time? Sure, Sky Falling. That's S K Y E, Sky Falling by Mia McKenzie. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Jonathan Alexander, author most recently of Dear Queer Self, an experiment in memoir. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Now, back to our conversation with Danielle Lindemann, author of True Story What Reality TV Says About Us. I feel like, well, we should probably talk about the Kardashians. Um, they are a chapter in your book, sort of, and at least a chapter that you dedicate to family. And what do you think we learn about family and the way that we think about family in our culture through the Kardashians? Sure. So one of the things um, that I talk about in the book is sort of the functions that family serves in society. And there's a lot of anxiety about the family and kind of like changing families. Is the family dying? 
Um, but, you know, one of the things we learned from reality TV is that, yeah, the family might be changing in some ways. How we conceive of the family might be changing, um, but families aren't going anywhere anytime soon. We've organized ourselves into families since you know, basically the beginning of human history. We're still organizing ourselves into families. That might look slightly different now. But, you know, the Kardashians, what they keep coming back to, and, and one of the reasons arguably they were so successful with their branding is because they keep coming back to this idea of family. They are in it together from the beginning and they were in it together, you know, pretty much, pretty much throughout the show. And they show us the things that kind of families do for each other and that families do for broader society. Like families pick up the slack where other kinds of social institutions can't. So, you know, yes, the educational system educates us. We have a public educational system, but it doesn't educate us in every facet, right? Who taught you to talk? Who taught you to use a spoon? Who teaches you morality, right? The schools aren't always doing that. And yes, we have a crime and punishment system, but they're not going to punish like a five-year-old for stealing cookies from the kitchen. So that kind of social control angle, that's a function that families serve. And we see the Kardashians kind of serving these functions throughout the show. Now, is their vision of morality the same as your vision of morality or my vision of morality? Maybe not, but they're still kind of socializing their children into an understanding um, of a particular type of morality and, and what is good and what's right and what's wrong. So another thing to kind of pitch forward a little bit as as we wrap up is a question about new media platforms that I think have become, at least in my view, reality TV subsectors in their own right. And so this would be, for example, social media platforms. So the way that um, not just the stars of reality TV, but kind of social media stars, so you, famous YouTubers, famous TikTokers, kind of are using the same facets of reality TV production, or at the very least, its appeal, if not its specific kind of production system, in order to kind of do the same things, to draw attention, to become famous, to sell things, to sell ads and sponsorships. So can you talk a little bit about how TikTok and Instagram and other kind of social media platforms might be a new sort of reality genre, one that's just almost just as lucrative, um, but also kind of tends to rely on the same narrowing conservative appeal that you've been talking about in reality TV? Yeah, definitely. So I, I agree. I would see that as kind of an offshoot of the reality genre. And oftentimes it features people who are former current reality stars, right? Mm -hmm. there's a lot exactly. Of yeah. There's lots there. of bleed over. Yeah. Right. And so we're already accustomed to seeing people like in that milieu, right? So we're, mm -hmm. we're familiar with that. And again, yeah, I, you know, you're, they're relying on, again, kind of a lot of those same kind of tropes and conventions, you know, leaning into their archetypes, self-branding, multi-platform approach, right? Like you can see me here on TikTok, but you can also buy my jewelry, right? Yep. And so it's, it's really interesting to me to think about, you know, like the genesis of real, even with, with the first real world, you know, really paving the way for the kind of YouTubers and TikTokers of today. I think, I think it'll be interesting to see, I guess this doesn't really answer your question, but I think it'll be really interesting to see like in the future, is that the future are, are these kind of TV shows going to become like serialized TV shows going to become antiquated now, you know, as people want, want to watch these kind of quick YouTube um, and, and TikTok videos. Um, so I, I guess to sort of answer your question, I, I certainly see it as an offshoot of reality TV and quite possibly the future of reality. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I wonder if in that future you see um, the sort of a, a lessening of that feeling of guilty 
of guilt that accompanies reality TV. Because as you said, you know, there's still, we still have this weird, oh, it's been around now for decades. We all know what it is. Lots of people, lots of people watch it. Um, but I wonder if like this proliferation of it or a, a different of it moving to different platforms, et cetera, will sort of mitigate what it what it seems uh, to like the affect around it, this like weirdness about guilt. It's interesting. You know, I think we like to see things in kind of linear ways that there will be some sort of linear change over time. Like we'll become more guilty or we'll become less guilty. Oftentimes life doesn't work like that. Right. But I, I also think, you know, already more of us watch reality TV than not. Already, you know, nearly half the shows on TV are reality shows. Already, even people who don't watch and are being not lying about it, who are being honest in the fact that they don't watch, they already know, you know, sort of what's happening on some of these shows just because it's out there in the cultural ether. So these things are already, it's already pro proliferated. It's already watched by a majority of us. So I feel like if the guilt had been, if there were any time for the guilt to be lessened, it would have happened already. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't necessarily see, you know, the other thing about reality TV and, you know, people often ask me, you know, why is there such a stigma around this genre? And I think one of the things is, is it's associated with women and femininity. Like everybody watches, but it's more often women viewers. And it's more often the women, women on these shows kind of performing on these shows. And we love to kind of culturally devalue products related to women, right? Like chick flicks and chick lit, right? So I think the fact that it kind of holds this kind of connection to femininity is going to reinforce this kind of stigmatization that surrounds the genre. And I don't see that going away anytime soon necessarily. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder why, why this, the, this connection with femininity persists. Because it is mostly women watching, you think? Well, it's not mostly. I mean, it's more often. That's empirically more true. Often. Women watching shows. If you think about the shows, you know, like the Real Housewives franchise, all women. Kardashians, right. all women. The people on the show. I mean, there are a few shows like Duck Dynasty and, and Deadliest Catch that have, you know, pre predominantly had predominantly male casts. But for the most part, it's women on the shows. I do think that plays a role in the fact that we kind of, kind of look down on, on it with disgust. The last thing that I wanted to ask you as we, you know, as we wrap up is, you know, we've talked a lot about the negative kind of side of reality TV, but there is several moments in the book where you kind of gesture at the fact that it's like, yes, it might have these bad effects. Yes, it's basically, to use another vulgar metaphor, it's like fast food, you know, cultural fast food. Like we know it's not good for us, but it's delicious. But you also kind of indicate that it doesn't have to be something that reinforces our, you know, most retrograde instincts or that is so conservative or narrowing. So can you just talk a little bit as we wrap up about the, I guess, the kind of optimistic, the utopian view of reality TV, if you will? Sure. I mean, well, first of all, you know, people often ask me, well, what, is, what educational value is, what value is there in reality TV? And I think, first of all, that's maybe the wrong question because, you know, not every bite of everything has to be nutritious. Maybe we can just watch it because we enjoy it. We enjoy letting sure. the content wash over us. You know, people don't generally have to justify why they like watching football. Um, no shades of football, but that's, that's a not very a good point. Yeah. And pursuit. Um, so there is that. But yes, you know, uh, in the book, you know, I kind of point out how reality TV shows us in kind of amplified form, in some ways, the ugliness of ourselves, right? Our racism, our sexism, mm. our heteronormativity, our classism, you know, that is out there on full blast. 
um, in reality TV, which is one reason I think reality TV is really useful to study because it really shows us those things in magnified form. But at the same time, reality TV also shows us some things that are really beautiful about ourselves. It's, you know, it is, it teaches us things. It goes into areas of society that scripted TV doesn't go. It educates us in some ways. You know, we learn about, you know, how to cook. We learn about, I mean, my favorite shows, as you mentioned earlier, RuPaul's Drag Race, you know, I would have known nothing about drag queens if it weren't, you know, for that show. Um, And I have learned so much, not only about drag queens, um, but about, you know, gender um, from that show and sexuality from that show. You know, reality TV historically has been more diverse than other forms of TV. Mm -hmm. And yes, sometimes that takes the, that takes the form of stereotyping and I would argue harmful stereotyping. But there is something to be said for representation. Um, you know, it was at the vanguard of kind of queer representation um, as well, going back to the early days of the real yeah. world. So, you know, again, those nooks and crannies of society that we don't often see um, in other forms of TV. And I think, you know, I'm an evangelist for reality TV in the <laughs> end. You know, I think it can teach us something really useful about ourselves and be a really useful social tool. And I would not be such a fan if I didn't think that was the case. All right. That's great. We've been speaking with Danielle Lindemann, author most recently of True Story, What Reality TV Says About Us. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Teasley-Vladen.